This is a podcast from the Business Times. Welcome to Property BT, a podcast series by the Business Times. I'm Senior Correspondent Leslie Yee, and I'll be your host as we gather insights on all things Singapore property to help you in your property investment journey. Singaporeans love to talk about food and holidays. We also love to talk about property, and in particular, residential property. Many Singaporeans are property savvy. We can avidly discuss how to go about securing a built-to-order or BTO flat from the Housing and Development Board or HDB. We can debate the pros and cons of various HDB estates. We can talk about the latest price trends in various locations and developments. We may also discuss heatedly living in private condominiums versus HDB flats. Our home ownership rate is high. For locals, owning a home often starts with buying a BTO flat. Such flats are sold ahead of their physical completion and at subsidised prices. Some BTO flat bars also receive housing grants. Typically, a minimum occupation period, or MOP, of five years applies to buyers of BTO flats. For couples who are doing well financially, once the flat reaches its MOP, the question looms, how about upgrading to a condominium unit? We will do a deep dive into the subject of upgrading from HDB to condo with my guest, Justin Quack, Deputy CEO of Orange Tea & Thai. Private home prices are high. A new condo in the suburbs of close to 1,000 square feet can cost 2 million Singapore dollars. Can young couples today still realise their condo ownership dreams? Is it wise to pursue this dream? Justin, a couple have stayed in their BTO flat for over five years. Should the couple sell the BTO unit and upgrade to a private home costing $2 million Singapore dollars or stay put and buy a $1 million private home for investment? In Singapore, we have a housing pyramid of segments where more than 80% of us actually stay in public housing. And we have very often used that as a springboard to jump into the next segment. In the next segment up above HDB markets are, of course, the private markets, the non-landed residential. And that consists of about 15% of the housing supply. Right at the top of the pyramid, we've got the landed properties consisting of less than 5% of the total housing supply. Mobility is very often aided by two things. In terms of economics first, we look at the existing equity in the house that you're living in. There is always that ready ability for us to take that equity out and translate that to a next class of real estate. The second point of mobility obviously comes from the leverage. And in Singapore, most of us do buy a home with leverage. We're very transparent and also a very good structure on how houses are financed here. It's also a safe structure for us to embark upon on leverage. Therefore, that's sometimes mandated by policy on how much we are able to borrow, the interest rates and all that. These factors are very often beyond the control of the individual consumer. So in the case of a couple who's lived in a BTO for five years, it will really depend how much they have gained. Because the amount of gains that they've had gives you that equity to be able to form the base for the foundation to put as a deposit for the next property. If you're living in a BTO in a more central area now, maybe Red Hill, Dawson, Tiong Bahru, you would have had significant gains on your HDB. However, if your incomes as a couple have not risen enough for you to stay back in the same area of Red Hill, an equivalent, let's say, 100 square meter apartment, three bedroom in the same locality would probably be around 2.5 million and above. So the question then is, do you have enough income to actually be able to jump into that space? Equity, yes, you can release, but income is another thing. How much of your monthly mortgage are you going to be actually giving up? 
Justin, I guess I couldn't agree with you more. The quality of public housing flats here is high, world-class, and many HDB estates have good transport links, plus a wide range of amenities to cater to many needs. A good interior designer can transform an HDB home. One can have an industrial chic home, the Scandinavian look, a colonial-inspired abode, the minimalist feel, or something that is very functional. Nonetheless, private housing developers and property agents are very good at selling the condo lifestyle. This lifestyle can be seductive. Beautiful swimming pools at one's doorstep, a sense of exclusivity, curated gardens, function spaces to entertain one's guests, and so on. But be pragmatic, right? Focus on the dollars and cents. HDB homes, as well as many condominiums, typically sit on land with initial leases of 99 years. These land leases can see their value run down over time. From an investment angle, is a leasehold condo unit or an HDB resale home a better buy? Justin, how do you see price appreciation of leasehold private homes versus HDB resale homes? Private properties tend to have a accelerated growth trajectory compared to HDBs because land sales, when they're released, they're bought over by private developers. And then this depends on the private developers' risk appetite depending on the market forces at a certain point in time. And in that appetite then contributes to a certain type of land price, which is then attributed finally to the selling price. Then comes again, looking back at the pyramid we talked about earlier on. If you have 10% of 80% of the housing supply population wanting to move into a 15-16% space, that's quite enough to create quite a ruckus in that aspect. And again, with how HDB flats have also performed over time, despite them being 99 years, that has provided a bit of a springboard for more than maybe 10% of the 80% who want to jump into a 16% space. From a cost plus perspective, plus an aspirational demand perspective, private properties tend to have a higher upward trajectory than would be HDB flats. Just barely 10 years ago, HDB's median price was about 448 per square foot. 10 years later, it's about 558 PSF. The median for private properties has risen from 1182 per square foot to today's 1617 per square foot. Certainly, specific factors, I guess, can drive the price performance of private or HDB homes. A home's price can be affected when a new building pops up to block one's view. Conversely, a building's price can go up when a new MRT station is being built nearby. Ultimately, given the high quality of public housing here, buying a condo is something aspirational, as we talked about, a nice to have. Still, to anchor talented and driven young people here, it matters that young people can attain condo ownership dreams. Having young people chase condo dreams is good. People may work harder and smarter, thereby creating a dynamic economy. Just try not to get too stressed up chasing after a condo dream. Recently, I did some analysis. My conclusion is that a couple comprising two graduates in their mid to late 30s, earning median income for graduates in full-time employment can realistically buy a $2 million condo. Such a couple would earn close to $18,000 Singapore dollars a month. A mix of proceeds from sale of a BTO unit, accumulated savings, and a bank loan can be used to help fund the condo purchase. Justin, is upgrading from HDB to private housing a realistic aspiration for young persons today? If we talk about the aspiration part, this is something that we should feel privileged about. Many countries in the world don't have this sort of mobility. We do have a rising population of baby boomers as well. 
a lot of them have also translated their equity in real estate they've been holding for 20-30 years and coming back down the ladder. Think of a young couple selling their VTO in a very prized area and the person who walks in might not actually even be a young couple but might be an uncle and auntie who just sold their landed or their private condo nearby. The second part again comes back ultimately to the economics of things. The couple who staying at Dawson Radio area and they're able to sell their flat possibly $1.3-$1.4 million. For them to come out of a, say, a 95 square meter HDB flat, it might work for them to buy a $2 million two-bedroom house around the same vicinity, but they might have to be double income with no kids. If you are a double income with two kids, three kids in tow, the two-bedroom solution may not necessarily work for you. If you want to buy a three-bedroom, like I mentioned earlier on, you might have to jump to $2.5-$2.7 million, which then may not be accessible to you. Despite having all that equity to be released, you're still talking about monthly mortgage of about $11,000, $12,000. Combined income of the couple needs to be close to $30,000 a month. So then you ask yourself the question, I have some spare liquidity. Can I then further jump into the private space without affecting my current proposition of living with my kids? So then you may look at other options like investing in a second property, provided you structure your initial holdings in your BTO in certain manners as well. Whether one can land a precious condo home does hinge a lot on one's earning power, but other factors matter too, such as one's financial commitments, family setup. Also, I guess one must be confident of one's career prospects to commit to taking up a big multi-year loan to fund a condo purchase. And home loan rates are much higher today, possibly well over 4% per annum, up from close to 1% per annum some time back. Moreover, different people may allocate capital differently among users such as housing, transport, education, entertainment, and financial investments. Also, some young people receive parental help to fund the buying of a condo home. Maybe such behaviour perpetuates the advantages of people born into families that are financially better off. Still to come, should one allocate as much of one's funds as possible into Singapore residential property? Lens on Singapore, a monthly podcast series from the Business Times podcast team on current affairs, societal issues and government policies explored through the lens of how it impacts us here in Singapore and in the region, anchored by Clarissa Montero and Howie Lim, every third Monday of the month. And now, back to Property BT from the Business Times. We have talked about the challenges facing young people in reaching dreams of condo ownership. Perhaps the dream is not an impossible one. But realising the dream can involve many sacrifices, such as cutting down on various expenses. Is the condo dream a worthwhile one? People may live to regret selling an HDB home to buy a condo home. As rules stand, an HDB home owner can buy a condo home, but not vice versa. Owners of private homes cannot buy HDB homes. A private home owner must sell his private home before he can buy a new or resale HDB flat. Perhaps rules should change, such that a Singapore citizen who owns only a private home can also buy an HDB home for owner occupation. Give local private home owners the flexibility of being able to own an HDB flat for occupational needs while retaining ownership of a private home to help fund retirement needs. Justin, do you think there's merit to letting private home owners buy HDB resale homes without selling their private homes? Is it likely that such a policy will change? 
We have to remember the word housing begins with someone having a roof over their head. However, somewhere along the way, this whole dream and aspiration of multi-property ownership and making lots of money and investing in real estate has gotten into a lot of our minds today. And now the home is looked upon more than just a home. A lot of people have gotten into the whole spiel about it being your retirement dream. Everything is about the home and building assets, building equity, building capital. The real estate market is a physical market and it takes time for inventory to actualize. So if we have a market that already takes time to respond to different demand patterns, and if we allow some aspiration to come in to fuel more of the market without regulation, when the supply is tight, it's not going to be a very stable market for one. That's why measures are here to provide temporal relief when different dynamics come into the market. If you study the sing stats, you look at the local population, the median age is now about 41 plus years old, and they are all economically productive. They are all in an aspirational phase of life as well. So we are in a very, very unique point in time in Singapore because you have a huge bulk of people who are mobile and more importantly, economically mobile as well. I think uh, it is rightful that currently we have some measures in place to control that as we've experienced. HDV prices, because of the resale market, can also be severely impacted when demand is not controlled. I think allowing citizens to own an HDV flat for own occupation and a private home for investment can obviously help people prepare for retirement adequacy. And this matters as we do live longer nowadays. Over the years, Singapore homes have been a great investment for many people. We hear many tales of relatives and friends who have prospered from the Singapore residential property market. Homes are tangible assets. Values of homes here can grow as incomes rise and infrastructure improves, and there's zero exposure to foreign currency risks. The additional buyer stamp duty framework can make owning multiple homes financially very painful. Setting aside the complexities of transaction taxes, I wonder if it is wise today to tie up large parts of one's wealth in Singapore homes. Right on Singapore being well-governed, a stable place, and a safe haven in an increasingly troubled world. Justin, should one get as much of one's wealth as possible tied to homes here? In the Singaporean context, I wouldn't use the word maximise, but optimally invested, because the government has taken great pains to again regulate how much we can borrow and put into each property. So actually, it does make sense to optimise one's finances to put it into something more stable like real estate as opposed to many other lifestyle things that we have today in the market that we can actually put our money in. At least in Singapore, we are privileged and blessed enough to have the ability to hedge ourselves into inflation with putting our money into real estate. But also when we maximize it in the context of the Singaporean story, it is based on a maximum allowable rate that the government mandates as safe and sustainable. I think it is always tricky deciding whether to diversify or focus largely on one particular asset class when investing. When you focus on one particular asset class, you kind of become knowledgeable in that area and that expertise can help give you an itch and can lead to making outsized gains. Physical real estate is possibly a good hedge against inflation, which is a major challenge for retirees. This is especially as high inflation may be with us for longer. However, over the longer term, Home prices here may face challenges posed by a rapidly ageing population and possibly slower income growth as the economy matures. With a high base in home prices today, making multi-fold returns on home buys can be difficult. Justin, you have shared some useful insights on price performance of HDB and private homes. I will put you on the spot. 
for a local couple with a budget of 2 to 2.5 million Singapore dollars and two kids, what would you recommend as the ideal residential property portfolio? It's a mix of economic lubricants and personal preferences. Going back to the story again of the couple who's staying in a pretty good area, RCR for instance, and now their four-room flat is worth maybe about $800,000. When they sell it, they can release about half a million dollars of equity, which is easy for them to translate into a $1.72 million house. For that amount of money, are they able to find a house that can fit the family's needs? If you're looking at the family again, the source of it is the structuring of your initial BTO. If you bought it as a couple and typically structured it like a normal couple should, then it'll be hard for you to do any decoupling. So you might have to just simply sell and move on to the next property. If you're currently living in RCR, you might need to go maybe on the outskirts of RCR or towards OCR to find an upgrade to a three-room or maybe a four-bedroom apartment, giving you more space. But again, you take a step back from the location. Justin, I think ultimately a home for owner occupation can be a store of value and a source of potential capital gains. However, unless one rents out a room in a set home, such a home may produce zero recurrent income. Still, one can justify spending lots of money on a home for owner occupation. One can have a sanctuary that helps one's mental health. One can have a great place for bringing up a family and creating special memories. One can have a suitable place for working from home or for entertaining family and friends. Deciding how much capital to put into an owner-occupied home, how much to put into an investment home, and whether to buy HDB resale or private homes are tough calls. Financial metrics and qualitative considerations come into play. Finally, one needs some luck buying property, as property markets have cycles and buying property like other investments comes with risk. Many thanks to my guest, Justin Quack of Orange Tea and Thai. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Property BT. Do join us for the next episode, where we plunge into the intricacies of the executive condominium or EC market. Are new ECs good buys? Should more people be allowed to buy new ECs? When is it a good time to sell an EC? I'm Leslie Yee. Thank you for listening and happy property hunting. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is meant to provide general information only. SPH Media accepts no liability for loss arising from any reliance on the podcast or use of third parties' products and services. Please consult professional advisors for independent advice.